Welcome to the Collins Hill Pulpit Podcast, a ministry of Collins Hill Baptist Church of Lawrenceville, Georgia. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you Bible messages that are relevant to the day and age in which we live. These messages have been preached from the pulpit of Collins Hill Baptist Church in recent days. Now, here is today's message. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. You got two, you're going to get two messages in one today. Aren't you so glad? I'll tell you what. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. We're going to start reading here in verse number 14. And we're going to read to the end of the chapter. Now I want to go ahead and say before I even start to read. Before I even start here on the message. That I will not be able to cover all that this passage has to offer. This passage is so rich and deep. And just so wonderful. And I will not be able to hit all of it. So uh, I encourage you to read it on your own time as well. But it's it's such a wonderful passage. And so as we start here, 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, starting here in verse number 14, the Bible says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, or, or we determine, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new." And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I want us to read verse number 17 again. In fact, I want you to read it aloud with me, shall we? Let's read it aloud. Let's give it some, some preacher oomph on it, all right? Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, read it with me. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We pray for your blessing upon the preaching of your word. We thank you for your word. God, I pray that today we would leave here changed. That we would leave here excited to serve you in this new year. Father, I pray for your blessing and your favor upon this message. I pray you'd hide me behind the cross. That you would cleanse me of all unrighteousness. That you would use me, use your word. And that your Holy Spirit would have free rule and reign in our hearts. Father, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to I ask, I wonder how many of you have already made a New Year's resolution? By, by show of hands, has anybody made a New Year resolution? I know I have, Savannah has, all two of us. Now, how many of you have ever made a New Year's resolution before in your life? There we go, we've got more. You know, I learned that it's better not to make a New Year's resolution because then I'm not disappointed when I don't keep it. No, I'm just kidding. But usually we make New Year's resolutions. Why? Because we want to be healthier. Maybe we want to be a better time manager or or maybe we just want to be a more productive person. I don't know what it is, but 
There was a Gallup poll that I read. It was conducted a few years ago, but it says, pretty interesting. By January the 8th, seven days into the new year, one week, by January 8th, 25% of people have already failed their resolutions. By the end of the year, by the end of the year, only 10% of people kept their resolutions. 10%. So if there was 100 of us here, only 10 of us would have the same, would have kept our resolution all the way to the end. Now, this one I thought was pretty funny. Maybe you can, maybe you were one of these, one of these percentage points. The word diet soars 80% on January the 1st. Starting on January 1st, everybody's looking up diets. And 25% of them by, the, by January 8th, they, they ain't doing it very much. And then by the end of the year, 10, only 90% of people have quit on their diet. Hey, it's okay. That is all right. You know, they, they, you know the Bible says that we're, it's appointed unto man once to die. And so I figure I'm going to die with pound cake going through, my, going through my veins. But anyways, I'm diabetic now. I can't really eat that very much. So, Anyways, many people make, they, these, they make these resolutions because they want a fresh start. They want a fresh start in life. They want to just kind of start over. They want that slate to be wiped clean. They look up diet and they forget all the, all the 400 pounds they gained the, the year before. And they're ready to lose, their, lose weight this coming year. People, they just want to start over, redo the mistakes that they made, or just become a better person overall. Now, I imagine, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have, how many of you have some things that happened in 2023 Maybe some things that you did, decisions you made, things you said that you say, I wish I could go back and do that different. Man, I wish I could go back and change that. I'm sure every single person in here. But I think it's safe to say that at times, every one of us have said, I wish I could just start over. Or man, I wish I could just have a fresh start. Do you know that God, he is a God of fresh starts? He is a God of new beginnings. The Bible says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He, he created, it, he's in a beginning kind of God. See, in John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word's with God, and the Word was God. We see God is a God of new beginnings. You never come to a locked door with God. You always come to an open door. There is always more to know about God, always more for you to do that He desires. There's always more of yourself that you can give to Him. You never come to a place where you stop going forward when you're walking with the Lord. It's walking with the Lord. It is a progress. The Bible says to walk worthy. It's a continual walk. We ought to walk with the Lord. And when we walk with Him, God is going to give us a whole lot of beginnings. You never come to an end with God. In fact, death, we think that's an end. No, that's really just what? It's a beginning. It's the beginning of eternity. And there is no end to eternity. God, he is a God of beginnings. But I want you to think about this. Every 365 days we're about to experience, God gives us what? A new year. Think about this. Every 24 hours, he gives us a new day. Every 60 seconds, he gives us a new minute. I mean, God, he is just a God of new beginnings. Who we were last year, we don't have to be today. Who we were last year, we don't have to be next year. You and I can be different. We can change. With discipline and with decisions and with the help and strength of the Lord, if you and I want to be different this next year, we can be. You know, if you make a dumb decision 10 minutes ago, 
You don't have to make that same decision in the next 10 minutes. God, he's a God of new beginnings. He's a God of fresh starts. The book of Isaiah chapter 43 verses 18 and 19 says this, Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do, this is God speaking, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. You know, that, that's pretty impossible, isn't it? To make rivers in the desert, or, or rivers, in, yeah, rivers in the desert and a way in the wilderness. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? You know, when it comes to this new year, when it comes to this fresh start that some of you may be desiring, and I think if we're all honest, every one of us are desiring in some area just to say, you know what, I start over. It's going to be different this year. God, He is able, the, the same God that's able to put a river in the desert is able to give you a fresh start in this new year. The book of Lamentations chapter 3 verses 21 says, This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. Verse 22, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Every day that we wake up, the mercies of God are brand new. The mercies of God, we, we will never exhaust the mercy that God will give to us. He's a God of new beginnings, a God of fresh starts. He will give mercy to you when you say, Father, I need a new start. He says, well, guess what? I've got just enough mercy for you. You can have a fresh start. I think all, as all of us, especially as Christians in our Christian life, we can use a fresh start. Maybe we consider our witness about giving out tracts, witnessing to our coworkers, witnessing to our friends, witnessing to our family. I think we've all have done, done not the greatest that we could have done. Maybe this year you want a fresh start in your witness. Maybe you want a fresh start in your walk with the Lord. You want a fresh start, you say, I haven't read my Bible as much as I should have. I didn't pray as much as I should have. I, I'm, I just want a fresh start. I just want to restart. And I want to start today, be a new day in my walk with the Lord. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's church attendance. Maybe you say, you know what, I, I, I wasn't as faithful as I should have been. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here today. But maybe you say, I just wasn't as faithful as I wish I could have been. And you, can, and, and you can say, you know what, Lord, this year I'm going to be as faithful as I can to your house. You know, he, he's a God of mercy, mercy that refreshes every single day. And if that's what you desire, if you want a new start and you have the right motive, God will give it to you. I do believe that. God, he's a God of new beginnings, of fresh starts. Maybe you say, you know, I didn't give the, to the Lord. I didn't give the way I ought to have financially with your time, whatever it may be. I didn't give enough. I'd like a fresh start in that. You know, God will give it to you. I don't know what it is that, that you are maybe is going through your mind and you're saying, man, in, in this area of my walk with the Lord or in this area of my Christian life, I wish and I hope and I determine with the help and strength of the Lord that I am going to be different this year than I was last year. I don't know what it is, but I can tell you that when we need a fresh start in our service to him, we can have it. He's not going to hold it back. He wants you to be better. He wants to grow you. He wants you to grow in your walk with Him. He, he wants you to be better than you were last year. That's His desire. I just wonder, is it ours? 
As we come to 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, we find this fresh start. We find three truths, three considerations that I hope that you'll consider with me. You'll see it in your handout. But we see the very first of these considerations is that we have the motivation of a fresh start. The motivation of a fresh start. Before anyone decides to start or to, to really go run a marathon, there must be a motivation there. You don't just wake up one day and say, all right, I guess I'll walk out there and start uh, running that marathon. No, that's not what you do. But, you know, when I, when my first question, when somebody says, you know, Landon, I've really, I've got a New Year's resolution. I'm going to train for a marathon. You know, my first response is, why? Why? Who are you running from? I mean, I mean, seriously, who would go train for a marathon? Now, I say that my brother, he does triathlons and marathons and ultra marathons and everything. And, and my question, seriously, why? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't run. The only time I run is when the dinner bell rings and I am perfectly fine. OK, but if you want to go run a marathon, you go for it. But you know what? The reality is, is that before you train, start training for a marathon, you find some motivation. Maybe you say, I, I want to be more disciplined in my life, so I'm going to wake up every morning and I'm going to take cold showers. I tried that. don't like it very much, so I take warm showers. Not very disciplined in that area. But so everybody, you're, you're motivated to do something in, in, in whatever it is. If it's a marathon, cold showers, you want to be more productive. I don't know what it is. But you ha there's a motivation that you find. There's a motivation that, that really starts to burn deep with inside of you. And, and it motivates you to do something. The same is true in our Christian life. If we're going to be different this new year, then we need to have and take hold of some motivations. The Bible here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, 15, and 16, gives us three motivations that we can have. We ought to take these motivations and take them deep within our heart and within our soul and let them burn deep with inside. I trust that these will be a blessing to you. Notice with me, the first motivation that we have is we are motivated by the love of Christ. We are motivated by the love of Christ. Verse 14, he says, For the love of Christ constraineth us. The love of Christ constraineth us. What does that word constraineth mean? That, that's an interesting word. It means to urge, to excite, to, to compel. Maybe, maybe you've been urged to do something before. You've been compelled to do something. Maybe you've seen those commercials that, that bring up maybe the animals and, and they, you know, the real sad music comes on and all sort of stuff. I can, I'm going to be honest with you, I cannot handle those commercials. I know that, you know, you know, they may, you may give a dollar and then, you know, 98 cents will go somewhere else and two cents will go to where it's supposed to go. But I can't watch those commercials. You know why? Because when I watch them, I am compelled to do something. I'm compelled to send them my bank account, my bank account information. It compels me. It constrains me. The Bible says here that Paul was constrained by the love of Christ. That he was compelled, that he was urged to serve the Lord. And what urged him? It was the love of Christ. A commentator described 
this word this way. With irresistible power limits us to one great objective to the exclusion of all other consideration. The word implies to compress forcibly that energizes into one channel. If you've ever seen a hydraulic press, I know that on, on Facebook sometimes you can watch those short videos when you're in your four and a half hour loop of just swiping up and down, you know, and you're like, man, time went everywhere. But you see sometimes they'll put maybe candy or they'll put Play-Doh, I don't know, under this hydraulic press. And then here comes this press. Well, you know what happens is when it, when it hits, it is causing so much force and so much pressure that if there is just a little hole in that press, guess what's going to happen? What is being compressed is going to shoot out that hole. That, that, this word constraineth, that, that word urge, that's what it means is that, that, that the pressure uh, and the compaction of all of these things, the love of Christ and, and how much it means and the weight of it, that it urges us, it compels us not to go 40 different directions, but to go in one direction. And it's in the direction of serving the Lord. We see Paul here, he says that, that the love of Christ constrains him. It, it brings this pressure upon him that, that pushes him to serve the Lord. We have the motivation of the love of Christ. Philippians chapter 1 verse 21 says, for to, me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We see here Paul, he was singularly minded. He had one goal. One main goal, and it was to live for Christ. That, that was his goal. The love of Christ had constrained him, had brought so much pressure upon him. And I'm not talking bad pressure. I'm talking about the pressure, the weight of, what the, of, of the love of God and the reality of God's love toward us. If, if you and I were to get a hold of in 2024, I'm going back two years. If we were to get a hold of in 2024, Truly the love of God, there is not one person that is in here that would not go all out in our service for the Lord. When you and I consider what Jesus Christ did for us, and we're going to get to it. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I can't help it. When you and I consider and, and, and we dwell on this motivation of the love of Christ and all that he did for us, it, it just you wouldn't be able to help but be constrained, but to go with that one main purpose and goal in mind. And for Paul, he had been constrained. He had come into contact with the love of Christ, and he dwelled on it, and it constrained him. It urged him to go in that one direction. He said, he said in Philippians chapter 3, that this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We see that it was this one thing that Paul did. And what motivated him to do that one thing? It was the love of Christ. That one thing constrained him. What should motivate Collins Hill Baptist Church to go forward in 2024? It should be the love of Christ. What, what should urge you and I as believers to serve the Lord, to be faithful to the Lord? What should urge us? What should constrain us to do that? It should be the love of Christ. You know, the, the reality is, and maybe, you, maybe you'll understand what I'm talking about a little bit. 
But if, if, you, if you go back in your mind to the word that we hear a lot, but it's the word legalism. Legalism. What, what is legalism? Legalism is adding works to salvation. Simply what it means. An, an alternative to, of legalism is when you say, okay, I'm going to do all of these things. And I'm going to check off all the boxes. And that is going to merit me favor with God. That I'm going to do so much for the Lord that it's going to make me more acceptable to Him. Can I just tell you that there is not one thing you and I can do to make us more accepted in the Beloved. The Bible says that we are accepted in the Beloved. We are loved with an everlasting love. You and I cannot work any more to gain or to merit more of God's love. He loves you just the way that you are. Of course, He doesn't want to keep you the way that you are because you're going to change but when we consider the truth of the love of Christ constraining him, he, Paul didn't say that, that his pastor constrained him. He didn't say that, that, his, that his children constrained him or that his wife constrained him, although we, Paul wasn't married, we understand. But, but all these things, Paul wasn't saying, oh, all these other things constrained me. No, what, what was the one thing that urged him to serve the Lord? It was the love of Christ. What is the one thing that ought to constrain us as a church this year? It ought to be the love of Christ. The Bible says in the book of Acts, chapter 4 and verse 20, Paul, or Peter and John, they were boldly preaching. They, they were, in fact, they were being attacked for their faith. But notice they said this, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. The Greek word that we find here in constraineth is the same Greek word that we find here in for we cannot but speak. That we cannot but speak. It, it was a pressure. They, they were so just compelled to speak of the things that God had done that they couldn't help but do it. When you and I come into contact with the love of Christ, you and I, we're just not going to be able to help but serve the Lord. Because He's so worthy of it. When we consider what He did, it is no big thing at all for us to serve him with our lives. You ever see somebody who's kind of, you know, half into Christianity, half out? They're kind of half committed to the Lord and half not committed. They're kind of living a little bit for the Lord and living a little bit for the world. Kind of enjoying their sin and, and trying to, you know, when it's convenient, enjoy the Lord. Can, you know the reality? You know what, what, what is true for, I would dare to say, every single person that is like that is that they have not fully grasped the love of Christ. Because when you and I fully grasp the love of God in our lives, we won't be able to, to help serving the Lord. You know, every, every dead, that dead feeling, I don't know if you've ever felt this when you pray and you feel like it's just hitting the ceiling and coming right back, that, that you're, just, you're just kind of in a, in a dead zone, really. You kind of feel like a lull in your Christian walk. I mean, you know, you just don't really have any motivation to serve the Lord. It's, it's just difficult. Am I the only one that's unspiritual here? I don't know. Maybe just sometimes you just kind of feel that, ah, you know, I, I don't even really know. That blah. I don't really know how to explain it. When it comes to your walk with the Lord. You know what has always gotten me out of that? Is when I remember the love of Christ. You know, when we dwell on the love of Christ in our lives... When, when we take time to sit back and say, God, this is, all, this is all the things and the ways that you've told me that you love me. You know, that, that little, nah, that is soon over. 
we see that we're motivated by the love of Christ. Not only letter A, are we motivated by the love of Christ, but letter B, we're motivated by the Lamb of Calvary. We're motivated by the Lamb of Calvary. When you consider Christ's love, it is only natural to then go to the demonstration of that love. Romans 5, 8 says, but God commendeth. He demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, true love goes far beyond just the mouth. It goes to, to, to working. When, when we start to show our love, I know every married man in here, if all you ever did was say to your wife, I love you, but you never showed it, your wife wouldn't be very happy. If I were just to tell Savannah that I loved her on the wedding day, I say, we love her. By the way, wedding March 16th, coming up in 2024, going to be an exciting day. You're invited. Registered at Amazon and Walmart. Okay, anyways. If you want the link to that, I'll give it to you now. But when, we consi- when, when I consider and I say, you know, you know, if I tell Savannah I love you on that wedding day, and then every day after that wedding day I act like I don't, well, what is she going to think? Well, is she going to be like, well, you don't love me. When we, when we consider the love of Christ, he didn't just say that he loved us, he showed it. He demonstrated it. We see that he demonstrated it by being the sacrificial lamb. Now I want you to notice some things. Remember when I said that it was, there's a lot in these verses and it's difficult to get, all, to get, get to all of it? Well, I'm going to do my best right here to, to, to shine some light on some, some interesting wording. I don't know if, if, it, if you're like me, but when I read these verses 14 and 15, I was kind of like, okay, that's interesting. Notice it says, because we thus judge, that that means to determine. He's determined. We determine. We find to be true. We we take hold of. He says that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Okay, what does that mean? What what does that mean? Well, look at the first phrase. It says that if one died for all. Well, who's that one? That's Jesus Christ. Okay, so we find that if Jesus Christ died for all, then we're all dead. What does that mean? Then we're all dead. Well, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, I'll read it to you. And you hath he quickened, that is to make alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Before you and I were saved, we were dead in our sins. Now, does that mean that we were physically dead? No, of course not. But our soul and our spirit, we were deader than a doornail. We were dead in our sins. The Bible says that if one died for all, then we're all dead. That if Jesus Christ died for all, then we're all dead. The fact that Jesus Christ died for every man proved that all were dead in their trespasses and sins. You say, well, how can, how can I know that I was dead in my trespasses and sins? Because Jesus died for you. If you, didn't need, if you were not dead in your trespasses and sins... Then, then that one would not have died for you because you wouldn't have needed it because you would have been already alive. But we understand and know that Jesus died for all. And the conclusion of that is that all were dead. Why did Jesus die for all? Because we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We all needed Jesus to die for us. Then we come to verse 15. And that he died for all. And so basically we have it reaffirmed. Okay, he did die for all. That they which live, they that, li- they that live. Okay. Remember, the Bible said that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then the Bible says, 
And in verse 1, and you hath he quickened. That word means to make alive. That means to give life. Before we were saved, before we were saved, we were over here. We were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins against God. But then the fact that Jesus Christ died for all, he made a way for salvation for all. And so when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, I'm no longer dead. Why? Because he's quickened me. He has made me alive. He has given me life. I now live because Jesus died for me and because I accepted the gift of salvation. So he says, and that he died for all that they which live, those of us that are saved, should not henceforth live unto themselves. Okay, if you were at one time dead, but now you're alive, you're saved, then the Bible says that you should not live for yourself. We should live for the Lord. We should follow after Christ. We should live to honor and glorify the Lord. He says here that we have been made alive. We have been, uh, that those which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. Notice in 1 John 4, 9, it says, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. When we get saved, we now live. We were dead. And the fact that Jesus Christ came and died for all proved that all were dead in their trespasses and sins. And when we accept by faith that gift that he gave, then we are made alive. We now live. And if you live, if you're saved, you shouldn't live for yourself. You should live for him. We see this this constraining, this urge is brought on by a motivation because of the love of Christ and because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Notice the end of verse 15. But unto him which died for them and rose again. We have the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, it tells us that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. He says that that is the gospel. That is the good news. And because of this, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, it gives us a motivation. Because he was that lamb, it motivates us to live for the Lord. Not only do we see that we're motivated by the love of Christ and by the lamb of Calvary, but we see that we're motivated by the life of Christ. We're motivated by the life of Christ. Number Letter C. We see in verse 16 this life. The commentator said this, in view of the fact that the Lord Jesus died for all people and rose again, in, in light of that, the effect of that has been to change all our feelings and to give us an entirely new view of people, of ourself, and of our Messiah, so that we have become new creatures. When it came to others, when it came to his worldview, when he came into contact with the love of Christ, the Lamb of Calvary, Paul's life changed. Paul no longer looked at people the way that he used to. Paul no longer acted towards people like he used to. He didn't see others, notice verse 16, after the flesh. Know we no man after the flesh. 
You and I, when we're, now that we're saved, if you and I are saved, we ought not look at others as just a person, as just a body, as, as just flesh. We don't, we don't know them. We don't look at them after the flesh. We look deeper than that. Paul, he stopped looking and caring about the age, the rank, the social status, the amount of money they had in the bank. Those are the things of the flesh. Paul started looking deeper at their soul. When we start living for the Lord, when we are constrained by His love, we will no longer look at others as just flesh, but as a soul that will be spending an eternity somewhere. Notice that Jesus, He did the same thing. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't look at the outer outside. He looked within. Jesus' life was characterized by seeing men and women as souls in need of him. James chapter 2, verse 1 through 4 says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. What is he saying? Don't respect persons. When it comes to our love and our gospel and who we share it with, we should go to the drunk on the street just as much as we go to the king in the palace. They both are in need of Jesus. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to the to the man, in, uh, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? What's he saying here? He says that we ought not. Look at men and women, and we ought not look at them and make the basis of our, oh, well, will we reach them today or will we just kind of let them go by? Or, man, they look different. What will people think if I go talk to them? Or, or man, they ain't going to really care if I give them a track. They're, they're not going to read it. No, no, we stop looking at them based on their outward appearance and we look at them the way Christ looks at them as a soul in need of a Savior. Why do we support missions? Why do we give to missions? Why, why do we go out and hand out tracts? Why do we do that? Because people are not just people. They're souls in need of a Savior. And the epitome of selfishness in the life of a believer is when we know that we're going to go to heaven and we don't tell others. That is the epitome of selfishness. And can I tell you that I'm preaching to myself right now. I can't tell you how many times I walk past people and I see, oh, they're wearing that. And I say, why in the world are they wearing that? Or I walk past somebody and say, man, they need to take a shower. I mean, come on now. I know that we all have been in the same boat. We've all thought the same thoughts. Or man, that person, man, why can't they just go get a job? I can't tell you how many times I've thought that recently. But can I tell you this? They're souls in need of a Savior. What kind of people do we want here at Collins Hill Baptist Church? What kind of people do we want to darken the door of this church? Do we want people that look the part, that look great, that, that, that fit the bill? And when we say, oh, do they look like church people? Let's see, do they have that, that, that? Yeah, okay, that, they can come. No, you know who I want to walk through those doors? You know who I want you to want to walk through those doors? People that come in that they're broken. No, they're not dressed right. Yeah, they probably don't smell the best. No, they, they really don't know how to talk in church. 
They don't know the hymns. They don't even know where Genesis is. But they need Jesus. That's the kind of people that I want to walk through those doors. You know, you and I, when we think about our motivation, our motivation for a fresh start, this motivation to be different, it comes to when, we mot- when we're motivated by the love of Christ, the Lamb of Calvary and the life of Christ, seeing others the way Christ sees them. That is the kind of church, that is the kind of person that we need to be. And maybe you're here today and you say, you know what, I, I haven't been doing very good at those things. Can I tell you, we have a motivation to be different this year. We have a motivation to, for a new start, for a fresh start. You don't have to be the same. You can be different. We have three motivations from this. The love of Christ, the Lamb of Calvary, and the life of Christ. Not only do we see the motivation of a fresh start, but these last two are, are quick. Number two, we see the means of a fresh start. The means of a fresh start. Now let's just say that I was motivated. If I was motivated to go race in the Indy 500. Let's say I was motivated to go do that. And I woke up one day and said, man, I I am motivated to do that. Well, you know what I'm going to need? I'm going to need a Formula One car. I am going to need the means to go do and race in the Indy 500. I've got to have the means to do it. So if we're going to, if if we're motivated, you say, Landon, okay, today I have been motivated to do X, Y, or Z, whatever it is. You, You need the means to be able to do it. Has God provided us the means, the the ability, the way in order to fulfill the things that we're motivated to do? The motivations that we have to have a new start, a fresh start. Has he given us the means by by which we will do that? Yes, he sure has. What are those means? Notice two of them really quickly. The first means of our fresh start is the means of regeneration. Letter A, the means of regeneration. Now, I know I've already stated it once, but remember how we said earlier that we we were dead in sin, we got saved, and we were made alive, we were quickened? That word quickened, made alive, it, it means made alive, but it also means regenerated. What does regenerate mean? It means to have new life. It's, it's similar to uh, what you would think of a, of a flower. You plant a flower, it grows, it's really pretty. Winter comes and it destroys it, right? And then guess what? Spring comes around and then that flower has new life. You know, we were that dead flower. And when Jesus Christ came, and it's, it's not the greatest example. You know, there really is no good example when it comes to, to the truth of salvation. But, but we were that dead flower. But Jesus Christ regenerated us, made us new. That word regeneration, it it, it not only means that he mended us, but he made us new. He didn't just take the destroyed parts of our life and just mend them together and and take glue and do it. like No, no, no. He threw it all out and made something brand new. Notice verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, if anybody's saved, if anybody has been in Christ or is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We have been regenerated. 
We have been made new. So how are you and I able to have a fresh start in this life? Well, that fresh start started when he made us new. When he regenerated us. When he didn't mend us, but he created in us a new creature. When he made us a new creature. That is when our fresh start began. And it's by that that we can have fresh start today. We'll, get, we'll look at that in a moment. I want to give you an example. A communist agitator was once addressing a crowd in a city square. He pointed to a beggar staggering down the street, arrayed in rags and tatters, and more than a little drunk. Communism will put a new suit on that man, the Bolshevik cried. A Christian in the crowd called back, Christ can put a new man in that suit. That's the reality. All these things on the external. All these, all these external motivations that we can have. That, that they may make our suit look real nice. That they may make our dress look real Or your dress, not my dress. Ladies, your dress look real nice. It may make you look real good on the outside. But unless you have been made anew from the inside, the outside won't matter. Like this man said, the communism will put a new suit on that man. But Christ, he will put a new man in that suit. And that is what he does. When you get saved, you are a new creature. You're not who you used to be. Look, I tell you, that makes me want to take off running. I was six years old when I got saved. So obviously I was not in this deep, dark sin. But I was lost without hope. And maybe you lived a life and, and you had lived more sin and maybe you, you kind of sowed your wild oats, but God saved you. Guess what? You're as, just as much of a new creature as I was when I was six years old. Aren't you thankful that we are a new creature? That old things, they passed away. We don't have to be like we used to be. God has made in us a new creature. And I encourage you that that is where it starts. A new fresh start begins at our regeneration. But then it goes beyond that. Second, letter B, we have the means of reconciliation. The word reconcile, I use that word a lot in my preaching, if you haven't noticed it. And if you ever get sick and tired of hearing me use that word and give that example, well then, hey, I'll just keep on using it a little bit more. But the word reconcile, it means a change, a change from enmity, from being at odds, to friendship. At one point you were at odds, and now you're, you're friends, you have a friendship. Between God and man, a state of enmity exists, but it's all on man's side. God does not hate us, he loves us. We hated him, for the devil told us God was our enemy, and that he wanted to spoil our fun. He distorted our thoughts of God, he wanted us to see him as a big ogre, Or he would tell us that the way back to God is a painful one, calling for penances and pilgrimages, fasts and sacrifices and sufferings. But, you know, the the Bible teaches us, as we look here at verse number 18, And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. You and I are brought back to God. You and I are no longer at odds with God. When we get saved, we're no longer at enmity, at odds. We've been brought to Him. Jesus Christ grabbed us from that dead state we were in. He regenerated us, made us alive, and in the process brought us into fellowship with God. 
Now, we have the means of this fresh start because of our regeneration, but also because of our reconciliation. I wish I could go into more of it. I'm telling you, there's so much here. But I'll just, I'll just give it to you here a little bit just to round this, this point out. But 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The book of 1 John was written to Christians. Okay, we're brought together with God by our regeneration and we can stay right with God in our fellowship because of God's and Christ's reconciliation. When you and I sin, it breaks fellowship with God. We don't lose our salvation, but it breaks that fellowship. And we need somebody to stand on our behalf. The book of 1 John later says that he's our advocate. He, he, he advocates for us. He, he stands on our side. He, he, he makes us right. He reconciled us to God. And he continues to do so to this day. Not only do we see the motivation and means of a fresh start, but notice with me number three, lastly, the ministry of a fresh start. The ministry of a fresh start. Okay. We've, we've got this motivation. Okay, I, I, Landon, I'm motivated now to do this, this, or this for the Lord. I'm motivated. Now I've got the means to back up that motivation. I've been saved. I've been regenerated. And I have, I'm doing my best to stay in fellowship with God in that reconciled state. I'm doing my best to stay there with the Lord by obeying His Word, by keeping fellowship. When I sin, I confess it and I forget it because He's forgiven it. Now what? Now you have a ministry. You have something to do. What is our ministry? Well, now, letter A, we have the ministry of reconciliation. Look at verse 19. Or verse 18, B, the last part of that. And hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. If you have been reconciled to God until the day you die, you have ministry. You say, Landon, I can't get out and do X, Y, or Z. I don't have ministry. Yes, you do. If you have been reconciled, if you have been saved, then now you can go and tell others how they can be reconciled. When we come to verse 19, we see what we are to proclaim. We're to proclaim that God has reconciled us to himself, that, it, that God was made, uh, that, came, that Jesus was God in the flesh, that Jesus took upon him the sins of the world, and that we do not have to die in our sins. We are to take that word of reconciliation, as verse 19 says, that word of reconciliation, that is our ministry. To take this word of reconciliation, the truth of salvation, to a lost and a dying world. That is the ministry of a fresh start. We've got a new start. We started afresh. What should I do? We should be a minister of the, of the, a minister of the truth of reconciliation. Not only do we see the ministry of reconciliation, letter B, we see the ministry of responsibility. Verse 20 and 21, I just want to give you these last two so you can write them down. Number one, because of our appointment. And number two, because of our appeal. We have a responsibility. Our ministry is a responsibility. Because of our appointment, number one, we have been appointed an ambassador. An ambassador is somebody that represents a country to a, to a, a foreign country. 
You and I, this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. This world is not our home. We're, we're pilgrims and strangers in this world. We're to be ambassadors for Christ. As he says in verse 20. We're to be ministers. To be ambassadors. But not only do we see that we're ambassadors because of our appointment. But we are. Or we have an, we're, our responsibility gives us our appointment. But it also gives us our appeal. Okay, now that we go to the world, what are we supposed to say? Verse 21. This, this, this verse is a message in and of itself. One of the greatest verses in the Bible, in my opinion, is verse 21. I'm going to read it again just because it's so good. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I'll read you this quote in closing as Savannah makes her way to the piano. In the sin offering, all the vileness of the sinner was symbolically transferred to the sacrifice, whereas in the burnt offering, all the virtue of the sacrifice was symbolically transferred to the substitute. That is the significance of Calvary. The Lord Jesus, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, took upon Himself all our sins, the sins indeed of the whole world. As Paul puts it here, He was made sin for us. When we appropriate that For ourselves, by personally receiving Him as Savior, all His righteousness, what Paul calls here the righteousness of God, is transferred to us. And when God sees us, He sees His Son and is satisfied. As the hymn writer puts it, All our sins were laid on Jesus. Jesus bore them on the tree. God who knew them laid them on Him. And believing, we go free. Thank you so much for joining us for today's Bible message. We pray that you've received a blessing and we look forward to being with you again in the future.